वेलकम टू प्रोएक्टिव फिजो पॉडकास्ट एपिसोड नंबर नाइन विथ योर होस्ट जैनी माई पॉडकास्ट हेल्प यू टू इम्प्रूव योर क्लिनिकल स्किल्स एज वेल एज द पेशेंट्स आउटकम्स इन पॉडकास्ट वी टॉक टू द लीडर्स इन मस्कुलोस्केलेटल इंजरी स्पोर्ट्स इंजरी मैनेजमेंट एज वेल एज द पेन साइंस स्पेशलिस्ट वी एक्सप्लोर देर एरिया ऑफ इंटरेस्ट एंड एक्सपर्टीज विच गिव्स यू लॉट्स ऑफ क्लिनिकल टिप्स एंड प्रैक्टिकल स्ट्रैटेजीज In today's podcast we have a guest Andrew Kopp. He is the clinical director at Sheffield Shoulder Physio Clinic. He is also education committee member in European Society of Shoulder and Elbow Rehabilitation. He is the PhD student at the Cali University. So let's dive into the today's podcast. Thank you so much Andrew Kopp for our proactive physio podcast. Just tell me about yourself, where you are and where you've been working right now. Brilliant. Hi, Jamin. Thank you for inviting me um, onto your podcast. It, it's, it's truly a pleasure. Um, so I live and work in England, in the United Kingdom, um, in a county called Yorkshire, which I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with yeah. if they are cricket fans yeah. with Joe Root yeah. and Jeffrey Boycott and the like. I'm a, I'm a big cricket fan. Um, so I live, I live and work in, in Yorkshire. Um, I have a couple of different strings to my bow, so to speak, in terms of my role. So I work for an organization called Connect Health. Um, we provide NHS services. So I work in the, in the NHS. Um, and I work in NHS as a consultant physiotherapist. So my role incorporates uh, four main things. Um, clinical practice is seeing patients, um, where I work in what we refer to as a um, a tier two musculoskeletal service. And, and what that means is that we typically, or I, I will typically see people that haven't got better with, with uh, usual physiotherapy um, or the symptoms have persisted for whatever reason. So it almost acts like a bit of a second opinion service. Um, we are able to order investigations. So I can order x-ray, MRI, um, ultrasound. Um, I can inject um, and ultimately, we're the people that refer to the consultant orthopedic surgeons. So in the UK, it's very, very rare for any patient to be able to be seen by an orthopedic surgeon without seeing a physiotherapy physiotherapist first. Um, and what we refer to as our GPs, our, our medical doctors, our, our general practitioner doctors, um, they are increasingly not able to refer directly to orthopedics they have to refer to physiotherapy and then the physiotherapist if appropriate um, will refer to the surgeon and, and what we often find with that is that patients get the same if not better outcomes with physiotherapy for a lot of common musculoskeletal conditions so part of my week is in clinical practice and um, part of my week is in um, education uh, kind of developing um, other physiotherapists or other uh, healthcare colleagues. Um, I then am also responsible for uh, nine of our services. So uh, I, I lead, I'm a, a clinical lead for uh, nine services in the north of England. Um, and when I've got a little bit of spare time, um, I'm also studying for my PhD. So I'm a, I have a day a week in, in research. And my PhD is at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, under the supervision of Professor Chris Littlewood, that some of your listeners are interested yeah, in the shoulder I may be familiar with. Um, yes, I'm my, familiar. You're familiar? Fantastic. Yeah, very nice chap. 
Yeah. And my, my PhD is looking at um, the use of diagnostic imaging, so X-ray, MRI and ultrasound um, for back pain, shoulder pain and knee pain. So a bit of a mixed yeah. week where every day of the week looks slightly different, which is good fun. <laughs> it seems like you have a very busy uh, schedule in your routine. And how about your PhD uh, going on? Yeah, it's still going. Um, so COVID has slowed it down a little bit okay. because um, the ethics committees for the research, they stopped for a period of time. Um, and all of the focus was on um, was on COVID-related research. Now that's back up and running again. Um, but we're just going to have to tweak how we how we approach the um, how we approach the study, just so that it can all be done virtually rather than than face to face. So there's some pros and cons, but um, probably just coming up to about forty percent finished. So another sixty percent to go. But yeah, we're getting there. I, I only do it one day a week. Oh, um, fine. That's good. So it's, uh, because it's I so... sent you one, uh, because uh, why I, I was asking, because I sent you one uh, notes regarding the x-ray, something radiological finding on a Twitter when you have started your PhD. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, re I remember reading that. Thank you very much for that. I forgot to, to <laughs> I think I said thank you. Um, it, it was very useful and it helped me shape. So you may have seen that I've recently published um, a review um, and that initial conversation with, with a few therapists helped oh. me to um, shape the search strategy. So what we're looking for and, and how we're going to frame some of the, um, some of the results. So yeah, that was really, really useful. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think my uh, my better half wants me to to slow down. That's for sure. Um, but busy week, and I think I'd get bored if I wasn't doing something. Um, so yes, it's, it's a pleasure to take some time to speak to you today, Jamie. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. It was a, a great pleasure for me to have a discussion with you. Can you tell us about what is rotator cuff related shoulder pain? Yeah, absolutely. So rotator cuff related shoulder pain. It's it's a very long title for. Um, a very common condition. Um, so rotator cuff related shoulder pain is, it's, it's an umbrella term. And, and what I mean by that is it's a term that encompasses lots of different presentations that previously we may have tried to uh, diagnose separately. So under that title of rotator cuff related shoulder pain, what we're essentially saying is that somebody's shoulder hurts when they move it. And that might be because of what we previously considered as diagnosis, such as subacromial impingement or calcific tendinopathy or bursitis um, or a rotator cuff tear, whether it be partial or, um, or, or even a full tear. It's an all-encompassing term that, in essence, I think... Um, provides us with an opportunity to help a person get better with their shoulder pain or to function better or to do more with it. I think it's a term that allows us to explore lots of different treatment options, um, but also ensure that the patient doesn't leave necessarily with a, a nocebic view of what might be going on in their shoulder. Okay, fine. So uh, when the patient comes to you with a shoulder pain, so how do you diagnose that this patient might have a rotator cuff related shoulder pain? Absolutely. And one of the things that to be mindful of with rotator cuff related shoulder pain 
is that it's a physiotherapy term. It, it, and we've got to be really careful because there's lots of terms out there in, in physiotherapy and within um, musculoskeletal medicine that we develop what we refer to as a diagnosis. Um, but we've got to be careful in terms of how we communicate that with other professionals. So if yes, you went up to a, many, many orthopedic surgeons and said, this patient has got rotator cuff rated shoulder pain, or if you said to a GP, a medical doctor, um, this patient has rotator cuff rated shoulder pain, may, they may not necessarily understand what you're talking about. What, what do you mean? Yeah. Um, yes. If you went up to the same doctors or the same colleagues and said subacromial impingement, they would probably know what you're referring to. And in a, and when we talk about rotator cuff rated shoulder pain, we're talking about the same patient, um, but we're using a different term. So it's really important when we start to reflect upon how we communicate and what we label things um, to, to kind of guide that conversation. And I think you can call it many different things. I'm not entirely convinced that um, we necessarily need to label patients. I think some patients will benefit from a label, but some patients don't. Um, and exploring those reasons and beliefs behind that, I think, is probably more important. But I'm a strong believer in that we shouldn't be calling or using the term impingement. And the, the reason for this is a few, a few years ago, um, Chris Littlewood and I were having a conversation about this. And we were concerned that if you frame to somebody that their shoulder pain is because the acromion is pressing down into the rotator cuff tendons, and therefore every time you move your arm, the acromion yes. approximates with the muscle, and it causes a tearing and a wearing away. That if you've then got a patient with shoulder pain and you're trying to get them to move their shoulder, to exercise, to use their shoulder in day-to-day -day activities, then those two things don't really add up. So if you're saying the pain is because the acromion is pressing down, well, every time I get pain, I must be wearing the, the tendon away. And when we reflect on... When we reflect on the back pain experience, when we think about how 15, 20 years ago, when people came through with back pain, we tried to diagnose facet joint problems, we tried to diagnose disc herniations, spondylolisthesis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we realized over a period of time that we probably weren't very accurate at being able to diagnose that. We would then use lots of MRI scans, and we're still seeing in the world these days today that the use of MRI scan is, is increasing we're not learning from the same journey because the third thing we learned from that experience is that we had to be really careful with our language and how we communicated with patients. So if we told patients that their discs were bulging, if we told them their spine was unstable, if we told them they were going to end up in a wheelchair, naturally patients were worried about moving. They were fearful. They were um, catastrophizing. They, they were actually doing all the things we didn't want them to do. They were stopping exercising, stopping engaging, because we left them with this sense of inherent fragility around their back, and that its back was something that needed to be protected. And if you look at some of the work of Peter O'Sullivan's Cognitive Functional Therapy Group, that's started around back pain, um, but it's a system that can be applied anywhere in the body. So, so we approached this with, through, through research by undertaking a, a qualitative investigation with patients in, in the north of England. And we had a look at a cohort of patients that 
had been diagnosed with impingement by an orthopedic surgeon and then referred to physiotherapy. And we wanted to understand what was it or what did that diagnosis mean for, for those patients that, that came through? And what we found was that describing the shoulder pay within this model made sense to patients. And when we all think about it and we reflect upon our own journey, at some point in our career, we all believe this acromion model because it makes sense. The acromion yeah. presses True. down, you lift your arm up. It makes perfect sense. Um, and patients said, yeah, it makes sense. It's acceptable. The second thing we found was that diagnosis was still framed within a biomedical model. So if there was any uncertainty around the shoulder, then a scan would be the, would be the way forward. This is what the patients perceived. But... The, the big impact and the one thing to take away for, for your listeners is that if we frame somebody's shoulder pain within the impingement model, we put up a barrier for them to be engaged with, with physiotherapy. And that's yeah. because, again, it makes perfect sense from a, from a patient perspective. They expected a treatment that matched their understanding of the problem. So if the problem is a piece of bone pressing into a tendon, then the treatment needs to take that piece of bone out. And physiotherapy doesn't take a piece of bone out. So they, yeah. they were finding True. it difficult to understand, well, why am I seeing a physiotherapist if the problem is this piece of bone? And that's why it's really important that we frame the understanding of shoulder pain in a way that reflects the evidence, but also reflects good practice and best practice. So if we reflect upon the evidence that suggests that if you operate on somebody's shoulder or you don't operate and have physiotherapy there's no different in outcomes at one year two years five years and 12 years in outcome we also know from the fantastic paper in a few years ago now it's 2017 2018 the seesaw study in um, in oxford in the, published in the lancet which compared subacromial decompression surgery to a placebo operation to nothing at all and we saw that all three groups improved. We saw that the two surgical groups were statistically better than doing nothing, but there was no clinical difference and no statistical difference between the decompression surgery and the placebo surgery. And that offers lots of questions and opportunities to reflect upon what does that mean for us when we see patients? What does it mean for, for treatment? And physiotherapy, we could do a hell of a lot better in terms of, of, of helping patients. But I think studies like that give us a real license to explore how we might do that differently. So that's kind of what I mean by, by rotator cuff related shoulder pain and why I don't use the term impingement. If I was going to diagnose it, for clarity with, to your listeners, it, any patient that you're currently diagnosing with subacromial impingement is a patient with rotator cuff related shoulder pain. The, the classic symptoms are somebody who presents with an insidious onset of, of shoulder pain. Oh. Um, so it, it can be traumatic in nature, but more often than not, there isn't a clear trauma. It's often preceded by either an unaccustomed activity um, or an unaccustomed period of, of life stress. So whether that be not exercising, poor diet, um, not sleeping very well, high levels of stress, something that shifts the, the balance in that, in that person, we refer to as allostatic load. So the system so, becomes sensitized. 
so it's kind of sedentary lifestyle people that that you are talking about those who are very sedentary lifestyle and uh, they comes with a shoulder pain so these are the things that you consider it doesn't necessarily just have to be sedentary i think I think there are probably different types of presentation in between it. So you can have these sedentary people who may have more of a metabolic cause. So um, obesity, poor levels of general fitness and capacity, particularly within in the shoulder muscles, that then might do an unaccustomed activity. And for some people, if that system is primed and is sensitive, it might not be anything too drastic. It might be something like carrying the shopping in, you know, from the shops back to your house might be enough to, to trigger off this, this experience. For other people, you might find somebody who isn't necessarily sedentary. They might be a gym goer. They might be um, somebody who works in, in, in a manual occupation. And it might be that they just done too much over too long, or they might increase their, their kind of volume of work um, kind of suddenly so for example you might find somebody who um it works maybe part-time might work 20 30 hours and then might increase their hours to full time so might be doing 35 40 50 hours um, and that might might trigger it off so i think that's a second group and, and a third group of patients that, that i see are those where there's almost a bit of a tipping point so somebody who might be working in in, in a manual um, occupation who get to 40 or 50 and they don't they might not go to the gym they might do but but they might not um, and they've always done this job and they've never had any problems with it but I think there's a tipping point and the way that I explain this to patients is that there will come a time in your life where when you're younger your work will keep you fit but there will come a point where you have to change and you have to get to stay fit to keep you at work and that might mean um, keeping a good diet, keeping a healthy weight, going to the gym, being mindful of how you how you um, use your shoulder whilst you're at work. Um, and uh, an example that I often give is is by the footballer uh, Ryan Giggs. Are you familiar with with Ryan Giggs, the footballer for for Manchester United? When he was younger, he was getting a lot of hamstring injuries, um, and he, he always talks about how when he started doing yoga, it prolonged his career and he played into the premier league until he was 40 and if you think he's an athlete he's trained he's fit um but where that fitness and that training when he was younger allowed him to play football he had to change to make sure that he was actually doing things that kept him fit to be able to train to be able to be fit for football and it's a slight change in, in mentality and sometimes patients can find that analogy quite useful um to see to see to see where we're, where we're coming from. So those are, I think there's kind of three different groups, the sedentary group um, that might have lots of metabolic or lifestyle drivers, which means their system is unable to um, have the sufficient capacity to deal with what they need to do. I think there's the middle group of people that are, are going to the gym or they are working, but then they do a sudden increase in activity. And I think there's a third group of people that are quite, um, quite, manual use their arms quite a bit and they don't do anything to train to keep to keep them at that level and as they get a little bit older i think it's a tipping point where they have to start considering conditioning themselves to allow them to carry on doing what they want to do now these are, are clinical observations i'm not basing this on any data or any evidence these are just three groups of patients that 
I think I recognize when I, when I see patients with rotator cuff and shoulder pain. Hey friends, you have listened to good information regarding the rotator cuff related shoulder pain. You have also listened about the difference between the placebo surgery and the subacromial decompression surgery. And we also understand about the classical symptoms of rotator cuff related shoulder pain. You can access our website www.proactivephysioknowledge.com and we have also an Instagram page at the rate proactive underscore physioknowledge. So now let's start with podcast again. And so uh, uh, in these three type of uh, group, what are the classical symptoms that you consider for the shoulder pain? Let's see an example uh, in a manual type of worker in a sedentary life people. And the third one, you are ta- you are talking about the the athletic population. So, what are the sure. main classical symptoms? The main classical symptoms, I think, if someone who presents with, as mentioned, kind of uh, shoulder pain, and what I mean by that is they will hold their upper arm. They're not often holding the the, the top of their neck where uh, the trapezius muscle is. They're usually in in that deltoid region. It might be a mild ache to begin with. It might be a little bit stronger than that. I think it varies. But pain in that upper arm, in that deltoid region, that is often associated with the three profiles that I've just described, either an unaccustomed activity, um, an increased activity off off the basis of um, a sedentary or or metabolic um, lack of conditioning, or somebody who uses their arms a hell of a lot. Um, but hasn't done anything to build that capacity. So insidious onset of symptoms in the in the anterior lateral upper arm. You also then see that they they they're able to move their arm. They don't they more often than not, as a general rule of thumb, the classic symptoms of this is that the shoulder's mobile. It's not stiff. So we're not dealing yes. with a with a frozen shoulder or a glenohumeral joint. It's mobile, it moves, um, but it's painful. So some people refer to this as the painful mobile shoulder. It's not unstable, it's not dislocating, it's not slipping in or out of joint, it's not stiff, it moves, but it hurts when they move. So that's typically what I'm looking for. If someone comes through and they're saying to me that my shoulder feels unstable or it's slipping out of joint, then I'm thinking probably dealing with unstable unstable shoulder, shoulder instability. If they're telling me I can't move my shoulder, more often than not, they're dealing with either a a frozen shoulder or glenohumeral joint osteoarthritis, and there's some other rarer causes of a stiff shoulder, but more often than not, it's one of those two. But they're coming through and saying, Andrew, I have pain here in my shoulder and it hurts when I move it. Then my my thought process at that point in time is this we're probably dealing with a shoulder um, that you might term as rotator cuff related related shoulder pain. Okay. Um, got it. Uh, you have explained uh, nicely about the classical symptoms. Now tell us uh, about how do you assess which test do you prefer for the shoulder pain patient? Like we have a Hawkins Kennedy, then empty can test. Which test do you prefer the first to identify the patient as a rotator cuff tendinopathy or and he has a tear or any pathology for shoulder joint? Sure. Um, I don't use many, many tests, to be honest with you, um, Jamie. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So I think the, the biggest part of making a diagnosis or understanding the person's presentation, because as I mentioned previously, I'm not entirely sure we have to make a diagnosis, is 80%, 80% of, 
of what we want to know and understand and work with that person comes from the history or what we might refer to as a subjective assessment or the subjective examination, talking to the patient, understanding what their symptoms are, how they started, where they're feeling them, what they're impacting on, what they're concerned by, what do they expect, what do they think is going on, what are their beliefs, what's their wider determinants of health like are they sleeping well are they eating well are they exercising have they got a good stress outlet so i want to know the person that's presenting with with the shoulder pain i'll then look at the the person moving their shoulder and as my previous um, point if they can move their shoulder it's not slipping out they're not overly concerned by moving it It, it's moving pretty freely then i'm pretty happy that i'm probably dealing with a rotator cuff problem or something that sits under that umbrella of rotator cuff related shoulder pain. You might just call it shoulder pain or mechanical shoulder pain. Um, but I would look to confirm that by doing some simple resisted testing. So usually applying some, some manual resistance to external rotation or to abduction. And what I'm looking for is a reproduction of symptoms, any perceived weakness compared to the opposite side, which might just give me a a bit of a baseline. It might not be true weakness. It might be inhibition because it hurts. Um, so I'm looking for the weakness, reproduction of symptoms compared to the compared to the opposite side. In terms of any testing, I don't really use them that that often, and, and that's probably because the reliability of them and the validity of them isn't that good. So, and what I mean by reliability is if if I did the test and then the patient stayed exactly the same and I saw them, say, a week later, I'm not able to, I might not get the same result by doing the same test with the same patient. It it doesn't, it's not consistent enough in terms of providing some information. Alternatively, I might see a patient, I might do a a Hawkins-Kennedy test, I'll leave the room, Jamin, you come in, you do the Hawkins-Kennedy test, and we might get a different answer. Um, So that's referred to as so what we call interrelator and intrarelator reliability. We then need to think about validity of the test as well. So do they diagnose what we think they're, they're diagnosing? Um, and what we often see is that that's, that's not the case. So, and we've known this now for about, about a decade. So um, Chris Littlewood, Stephen May, um, and the team from, from Sheffield Hallam University in the UK formed a systematic review in, in 2010, which demonstrated that none of the special tests in the shoulder were reliable. And we often say that for a reliable clinical test has to have um, for a, a kind of a, a reliability of, of greater than 70%, depending on how you measure that. So it could be a kappa coefficient, it could be an intracast correlation coefficient, but you want it to be reliable more than 70% of the time to be acceptable in clinical practice. And none of the shoulder tests met that threshold. We also know from a validity perspective it is really tricky because for a test to be able to stretch or stress or compromise part of the rotator cuff muscles in isolation, it, it's dependent upon those muscles being isolated. And as soon as you lose that ability to stretch, stress or compromise a muscle in isolation, then you lose the ability for that test to be specific. We also know that you've got the subacromial bursa in the shoulder, which is a huge bursa. Yeah. It's got, it's innovated by C4-5. It's, um, 
It's got nociceptive chemicals within it. It has the potential to, be, to develop a nociceptive Ooh. input into the system. And whatever position you put your shoulder in or, or however you move your shoulder, you're going to be compromising the subacromial bursa. So you're unable to say which part of the cuff is, is indicated. The final reason why, and this brings me to the point you mentioned about differentiation between a rotated cuff tear, for example, is that yeah. we know that people with shoulder pain have changes upon their scan. So we don't have a, we don't have a good um, reference standard to compare the clinical tests to. So if I were to do a Hawkins-Kennedy or drop arm test or an external rotation lag sign, I think, right, that person's got a rotator cuff tear. If we knew that patients that didn't, or people that didn't have shoulder pain had a normal scan or had a, a normal diagnostic arthroscope, then that would allow us to compare and work out how accurate these tests are. But we know that about 40% of 40-year-olds, about 50% of 50-year-olds have tears on their rotator cuff and don't know about it, and they will never know about it. And we know that about 96% of men over the age of 40, if you scan their shoulder, you'll see something on their scan, which you might label as an abnormality, despite having no symptoms or no history of symptoms. And that seems to just be a, a, a presence of being a human being that gets older. We get wrinkles on in our skin, we lose our hair, we get gray hair, and the same thing happens on the inside of the body as well. So this really then questions, A, do we need to make a diagnosis? B, can we reliably make a diagnosis? How do we use or when do we use imaging? And this, as mentioned, is kind of the focus of my, of my PhD. Um, and that's really tricky. And that brings us full circle as to why this term of rotator cuff related shoulder pain has been adopted, because it offers such it's an umbrella term that allows you to discuss the uncertainties with patients. It also allows you to discuss the rotator cuff. These are muscles, muscles like exercise. The healthier you are, the more the healthier your muscles are. And it allows us to frame, back to the study that Chris and I performed a few years ago, patients expect a treatment that matches their understanding. And if we can shape the understanding, this is a problem with the muscles, the fitness of the muscles, the conditioning of the muscles, and we try to make them fitter, stronger, more conditioned, then we're able to offer the patient a, a way forward from a perspective of, of, of as physiotherapists. Uh, you are more into the functional approach for, to, uh, for assessment of the rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, and you are more focusing on the history, the onset, the pain, the pain duration, and the, there are other factors there that we need to consider it. The thing is then, how much do you give importance for the scapula uh, for uh, rotator cuff-related shoulder pain? Sure, yeah, really good question. And the, the answer is, I don't know is the answer. I don't think we know. Um, and I think there are some people that think the scapula is really important. And I think there are some people that, that don't look at the scapula at all. If you If you put a gun to my head and ask me, I'd probably fall in that latter camp where... I don't look at the scapula in too much detail. And, and there's a couple of reasons for this, three reasons, really. The first reason is it boils down to the reliability again. So it, like I mentioned before, okay. if I looked at it yeah. twice or if you looked at it, then I looked at it, we, we, would, we would get a, a, the different, we'll get a different answer more often than not. The reliability in some estimates has been around about 10%. So if you put okay. two conditions in a room, they agreed 10% of the time. 
So that, that's the, the big question is, well, how reliable are we in determining when it's relevant? The second thing is that even if we took reliability away and we thought we could look at this asymmetry of or perceived asymmetry of either the scapula, how it rests or how it moves, there doesn't appear to be a predictable um, change for how the scapula sits at rest and how to predict it's going to move. But we also okay. don't know if we think there is a scapular problem and we were to prescribe some exercises for the scapula, the patient might get better, their symptoms might improve. But if we then retested or reassessed the scapula, there'll be no difference in terms of what the scapula looks like now when the person's not reporting any problems than when it was when we started. Now, I know you've had Ian Horsley on, on your podcast and and Ian and I have discussed this before because Ian and the population that Ian sees within elite sport, he is a big proponent of the scapula and particularly upward rotation of the, of the scapula. Um, and his kind of counterpoint to that is that whilst the person might not have any symptoms, it may be that the scapular position affects the length tension relationship of the muscle. And that if you don't get an optimal length tension relationship, that might have a knock-on effect in terms of performance, how much power or force can the shoulder generate. So there's probably different aspects to that. The third reason for me why I'm not overly fussed by the scapula is because muscles that attach to the scapula include the rotator cuff. So a rotator cuff exercise is a scapular exercise. Yeah. A scapular exercise is a rotator cuff exercise. And as you've alluded to there uh, previously, my approach is much more based on the function. So what is that person struggling? Can I break that down and can I prescribe an exercise that's based within a program that aims to make them healthier? So we'll have a general exercise component. I will have something that is specific to conditioning that body part, a local exercise, but I'm also going to be putting in a functional exercise. So, for example, if someone's struggling to reach, I'm probably going to give them a shoulder press exercise. I'll get them doing some general exercise they want to do because I think the healthier, I think for a lot of non-traumatic MSK conditions, it can boil down to if we can get you healthier, you should get better or, or function better. And healthier might be sleeping more or better quality sleep. It's eating healthier. It's exercising more. It's maintaining a healthier weight. It's de-stressing. If we do all of these things, we're going to help that person get healthier. And if we can do that, as well as provide something that helps them achieve their functional goal, then I think we're in a good position. That's a nice information you have gave us about the how to rehabilitate also for the rotator cuff related shoulder pain. So in summary, we understand that the, uh, we need to more focus on the history part as well as the patient functional activity, uh, as well as his uh, involvement in uh, specific sports. Depending on that, we choose the rehabilitation uh, program. Apart from that, first of all, we need to uh, subside the pain and inflammation part and then uh, prescribe the exercise for the rotator cuff shoulder pain. And the second thing is that uh, you you told about the specific exercise uh, for the patient. If the patient has a pain in overhead activity and then uh, uh, you said about uh, uh, he, uh, you gave some uh, press up exercise for the shoulder. So, uh, in that kind of case, are you going uh, straight away to give that motion for the patient, or you are gradually increase the range and for the uh, shoulder joint? 
I, I, the answer it depends, uh, Jamin. To be honest, so part of my assessment will be to determine what is their functional capacity. So, if, for example, if they can already do the shoulder press above their head, and the it's an acceptable level of discomfort, they can perform the exercise to to near fatigue. They feel like they're working. Um, and then we monitor the symptoms straight afterwards and it doesn't appear to have a rebound or, or flare up, then that might be their, their exercise that they go home with. It might be that they can do that with a, with a five kilogram dumbbell. It might yeah. be, if we take that as a starting point, we might say, oh, here's a five kilogram dumbbell. Can you lift that above your head? And they say, yes. Okay, well, can you, can you keep going? Yeah, okay, that, that, that's good. If they say, actually, no, this is starting to be too painful now. It, it, it's seven, eight out of 10. I think that's too heavy. That's fine. We'd back off. We might try two and a half kilos. Oh, yeah, that feels a lot better. Yeah, I think I can get to um, 10, 12, 15 repetitions of that. Okay, well, that's your, that's your starting point. Um, but the key thing that looks looks to be key from, from rotator cuff rehab is that there needs to be a, a loaded element to it but it needs to be progressive as well. And that's the key thing is it's got to be progressive. So it might be that even the two and a half kilos is, is, is too much. So it could be, we just get the person lifting their arm above their head. It could be that we're lifting the arm to about shoulder height and not going much further. Um, and once, once we set the parameters of what we deem as acceptable, so, and that's a, a joint conversation with the patient. I won't say to the patient, this is acceptable. Because what's acceptable for me might not be acceptable for them and, and, and vice versa. So we'll have a bit of a discussion. Yeah. And typically we'll say, we want this to be a challenge. Um, we want this to, and it might be discomfort. It doesn't have to be, but it might be some discomfort there. And that's okay. And what we typically recommend is that that level of discomfort is both acceptable to you, but also settles down quickly after you stop doing the exercise. And it shouldn't change your sleep and it shouldn't be worse the next day. We'll have a little yeah. bit of a conversation yeah, around. Uh, thank you very much. We'll have a little bit of conversation around um, the difference between uh, the shoulder being sore the next day because you've, you've worked it out, a DOMS, a delayed onset muscle stiffness versus this is flared up. So they'll, know, they'll be able to self-monitor. And um, then what I say to them is, if you can lift your arm to, to shoulder height and it's acceptable, it doesn't flare up, then the next time, try and do a full press above your head. And if that's okay, then the next time, try your two and a half kilo dumbbell again. If that's too much, then you might want to back off and just use your, um, your, your body weight again. So the idea that I'm always trying to do with the patient is saying, these are the principles so, and we have a bit of discussion and if the person can understand the principles of of what's acceptable of how to make it harder how to make it easier then it makes my job a hell of a lot easier and i always say to, to my patients that my job is to try and make myself redundant they shouldn't need me to get better if i can in collaboration with the patient get the person to understand what could be going on how they can help themselves to do it how they can guide and dose their own recovery then longer term, the outcomes are a hell of a lot better than if they're purely reliant upon, upon themselves. So that's how I, I would look to dose it.
the way you explaining us it's fantastic thank you for giving us a great information regarding the rotator cuff related shoulder pain and can you please tell us about how we can reach to on a social media sure yes yeah. so um i have you can you can reach me on social media on twitter which is um at andrew v cuff um all kind of together uh, you can get me on my website which is www.sheffieldshoulder.co.uk um twitter is probably the best place to to get me there's also if anyone's interested in um some teaching we i teach with a colleague of mine called thomas mitchell we deliver a course known as the complete upper limb course um that can be done face to face so i was speaking to jamie before we started recording i was in Delhi three years ago teaching on on, on yeah. the shoulder a great time over there um but we're also now doing an online version of the course as well so um that is www.completeupperlimb.co.uk thank you for listening proactive physio podcast episode number nine if you like our podcast write an email to us visit our website and know more about various condition and its clinical implication our next podcast is about subacromial pain is the right label to shoulder pain or not have a nice week see you